Hello, I'm Paul Cuddehy and welcome to this special Read All About It podcast series, The 12 Days of Bookless. Do you see what I did there? And here's what you can look forward to. 12 days, 12 guests and a whole host of great book recommendations as each guest chooses their favourite fiction and non-fiction read of 2020. Well, I also choose a book I've enjoyed reading this year. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about this special Read All About It podcast series. Hello and welcome to the 12 Days of Bookmas, this special podcast brought to you by the Read All About It podcast. And we're up to day 11 and I'm delighted to be joined on this podcast by Professor Willie Maley. Willie, thanks for joining me on the 12 Days of Bookmas. Pleasure, great idea by the way. Thanks very much and uh, I'll just hasten to add that I never paid you to say that. One thing I was going to ask you, obviously um, I was curious to find out the kind of books that you've enjoyed reading over the course of the year, but I'm guessing uh, what I wanted to know is how difficult it is for you to read for pleasure because I know a lot of what you read is work-related and can you separate yourself and differentiate between the two easily enough? It's very difficult because two things that I read recently that I'm not going to talk about today, one of them is John Milton's uh, considerations touching the likeliest way to remove hirelings from the church from 1659 and it's an absolutely brilliant pamphlet, one of his, one of his last pamphlets and it's really a superb piece of work. I could have, I've heavily annotated it. That could have been my non-fiction piece of the year. I'd read it before, but, but come, revisiting Milton, and especially the prose, because people know the poetry, is just an absolute joy and delight. So, But it's a very special niche delight, but it's catnip for me. So I've really enjoyed that. And the, the fiction book that I read, because to answer your question, I don't get a chance to read a lot of fiction. I certainly don't get a chance to read a lot of contemporary fiction. Most of my reading just now is in the 17th century. But I read the late, I do try to keep up with Stephen King because I've been reading him for 45 years or thereabouts. So I did read The Institute, which is one of Stephen King's recent novels published in the last couple of years. And that was fascinating. It's, there's always a supernatural dimension and that's always the least interesting. But for me, it's the story and the kind of blue collar, brown collar world that he, that, he, that he creates and writes about that I think is totally fascinating. So I really enjoyed that. But those are, those are two that I could talk about because they're a non-fiction and a, and a fiction. And you're right, I don't, the lines blur between the two, and I'll say a bit about that in relation to the two that I have chosen. Yeah, because I remember you telling me before that, obviously, even when you're reading, sometimes if it's a book for pleasure, there is a part of you thinking, is this something I could maybe give a lecture on or a talk on or a paper on? And, you know, obviously, it's just an extra layer, I suppose, to your appreciation of the book. Yeah, I remember talking to a, a journalist. She, she did a lot of reviews, and she, she said that her boyfriend had said to her, there's a sandwich, review it because it seemed to be that anything that moved, she, she did a review for it. They couldn't, go, they couldn't enjoy a film or go to a show, you know. So I think there is that aspect of it, if it moves, teach it. And I mean, I, I love reading prose non-fiction for the 17th century, so I, I can't complain. But it does mean that there are, there are people, somebody asked me to do something recently on contemporary Scottish fiction. And in the end, I had to hand it over to a PhD student of mine, former, because I realised that, it was some, that I, I really was not well-placed to discuss contemporary Scottish fiction because it's not what I'm currently teaching. I'm doing the African novel and I'm doing 17th century literature and I'm doing some post-colonialism. So I'm, I'm out of the picture with a lot. Of, you probably read more contemporary fiction than me, Paul. Yeah, but you would never trust me to start imparting my knowledge of it to anybody else. <laughs> I would. I'll bear me in mind then in future if anything pops up. I'll do that, yeah. 
In terms of the, the choices that you have made for this podcast, and if I can start with the, the non-fiction book that you have chosen, it's a book by Sean Damer, and I'm not sure if it's called Scheming or Schemies. I brought it along for this Zoom, and then you told me it was audio only, so I was going to present to you the beautiful cover of, of the two books that I've chosen. But this book by Sean Damer is called Scheming, and the subtitle is A Social History of Glasgow Council Housing, 1919 to 1956. Now, if you know anything about me, you know that I wasn't born then. So it's a kind of prehistory of scheme life and, you know, slum housing and, and kind of housing history of Glasgow before the 60s and before our time. I know you're a lot younger than me, Paul, but before our time. But it's got a variety of particular points of interest in it for me. But it's, so it's like the backstory to the world of housing that, that you and I grew up with. Was it something that you came across in terms of just your own interest in, in either the subject or did you say that you're kind of the background of it or, or did that come across your desk in, term, in an academic sense? No, it didn't. It's a complicated story and I could probably tell it quite briefly because I, I've always had an interest in Glasgow housing, but it's always been something of a mystery. I mean, Mark, Marx wrote a pamphlet about 150 years ago called The Housing Question and housing is very important, but it's a mystery. Housing, we all live in houses, we all have homes, but the mystery of segregation and how people live in one place and not in another and what's happened to communities and how they cut Glasgow in half to make way for cars and so on. It's all a great mystery. Some people who are architects or housing experts have written about it, but it's generally unknown except it exists in the folklore of people's memories. They know where their parents live. My father grew up in the Carlton, my mother grew up in Kirkadens, and they were sort of slum clearance. They were, they were, they were certainly slums that they moved out of and that were largely trashed in later years by the time they, they were bringing their kids into the world. So I've always had an interest in it, but just that interest that you have if you live in a city and you see massive changes and you, and you wonder what's happening. So I had that interest in it. Now, Sean Damer is somebody who wrote a book a long time ago called Glasgow Going, Going for a Song, and he's always written interesting stuff about Glasgow and housing. So it's always been a, a, an interest of mine, housing in Glasgow, how it got there, what changed, what the improvements were, what improved in terms of better housing conditions, but what was taken away in terms of a sense of community. I live in a street where I don't know the people up the next close. Where I grew up, you could go through every close and make a list and you knew everybody. So there's a whole thing about what happens to communities with rehousing projects, and then there's a whole sticking people into tower blocks process. This is a book I would have had an interest in it because I have an interest in the idea of the scheme and he even uses the best laid schemes, which would, would have been one of my quotes. And you've got a, a brilliant McIlvanny quote as the epigraph. And that quote is for Laidlaw, 1979. And it says, talking about Glasgow, and what's there? Hardly anything but houses. Just architectural dumps where they unloaded the people like slurry. Penal architecture. Glasgow folk have to be nice people. Otherwise, it would have burned the place to the ground years ago. Now, where I lived in Glasgow, they built a swing park and it was beautiful, beautiful swings, beautiful shoots and so on, and it was burned to the ground. But most people wouldn't understand why that happened or they'd just say vandals. They don't understand the context or the history. So I would have been interested in the book from the outside. But Sean Damon and I have exchanged a couple of emails and there's a chapter in this book on Hamilton Hill, which Hamilton Hill is one of the parts of Greater Postle, if you like. So there was a chapter in, that I was in, particularly interested in, and I got the book. Now, the book is, is out in paperback now, and it's £20, Edinburgh University Press. I would like to see that book done in a more popular edition and more available, because what, what he's done is he's talked to pioneering tenants of these various uh, housing schemes that he studied. So Moss Park, Hamilton Hill, West Ramoyne, Black Hill, Craig Bank, South Pollock. He's gone through those six estates, and just looked at the history of them. 
interviewed people that lived in them, spoken to some of the earliest tenants of them, the pioneer tenants, as you call them. This is a project he did. I think there's always been something missing in, in Glasgow and maybe in Scotland as a whole, something between the kind of picture book that you get, which gives you a nostalgic view of an area. Say, say you've got a little booklet on Bishop Briggs, for example, and it'll show you photographs of the making, you know, Bishop Briggs of the past. And maybe at the other end, you've had something that's part of some academic study, but you've noted something that's been in between that's told the stories. So I think it's, it's a really important book. I would like it to have a wider audience. It's got a great cover and it's got a great title, but it's not the kind of book that's, I think, likely to be a popular or easy or light read. I mean, it's full of really great interviews, but there's actually a connection between this book, the Sean Damer book, and the next book that I'm going to talk about. I think these sort of books, I think you're absolutely right, if they could be more accessible or more readily available to a lot of people who'd be interested. I always think it's those human stories. That's what really connects people because it's people you know, it's relatives you know, it's part of your family. That's what engages people in something non-fiction like this. It could perhaps be seen as an academic study, but actually it's the human stories that engage the reader. That's exactly, you're exactly right. And I think the format of this book is it's a bit more academic, it's a bit more sociological. But the, the voices come through because he, he does these interviews with these tenants. But So it is oral history, and I think that's very important. I think telling the story of a scheme, it's history through the people that live there. But I think there should be more popular forums and ways of presenting that. As I say, it starts with a quote from Michael Vanny, and it finishes up with a quote from another recognisable writer. Burns, it says, the best laid schemes of mice and men gang after glee, and Leah's not but grief and pain for promised joy. So I think it's framed by these kind of a great Scottish writers, but there is a kind of missing middle. But one of the things that made me think about reading it was my favourite book by James Kelman is The Bus Conductor Hines. And The Bus Conductor Hines talks about the district of D, which is Drumchapel, but you don't get an awful sense, an awful strong sense of Glasgow. You get a strong sense of an individual consciousness. And I think to give a sense of place, as Urban Welsh does in something like Glue. But I think giving a sense of place is quite a challenging thing in, in writing, and I don't think there's a, there, there really is enough of it. So I would, I would almost like to see scheming adapted into being something else, being either a popular, less of, a, less of an academic textbook, and more of a popular story. And that, I suppose, would bring me to my, my second author, if not my second book. I can double back and talk about the, the, the links with Sean Damer. Because my second author is Alison Irvin. And about 10 years ago, Alison Irvin wrote a book called This Road is Red. And when I read This Road is Red, I thought it was remarkable. And I thought it was a model for something that should be done for every single scheme in Glasgow. It's about Red Road Housing Estate. My, my father was one of the labourers in that. We started building in 1964. So I was interested in what Alison managed to do. Very similar to Sean Damer. She spoke to local people. She spoke to the first residents, historical view of residents of the area, and told a story, but not as a, not in a kind of academic, kind of slightly formal way, but as vignettes, stories, anecdotes, memories, and so on. And I thought it was really remarkable. It was the kind of thing I, I, I wish I could do for my own housing scheme. She caught it before it disappeared, as it were, and I think that's really that's a really vital thing to do. As well as uh, your two book choices, Willie, I also chose a book, and I've, I've even brought it as well. And although people are only listening to this, I'll just show you the cover as well, just to prove that I, I did bring it. It's a book called uh, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty, and it's a book by Kate Hennessy. And it's actually, it's an intimate portrait of her grandmother, as a woman called Dorothy Day, who, amongst other things, founded in the United States an organisation called The Catholic Worker. It started off as a, as a kind of newspaper pamphlet, but it was basically a an organisation that was dedicated to basically helping the poorest of the poor in society. 
there were several reasons why I chose this book. First is I love the, the title. You know, I'm I'm always a sucker for a great title. It's from a Dostoevsky's quote, and apparently that was one of Dorothy Day's favourite quotes, the one will be saved by beauty. I think it comes from the idiot. The two reasons, the main reasons that you came back into my mind to talk to you about it today was I'm always curious in terms of Catholicism and, and the Catholic Church, of which I am I'm still a practising member. And people seem to split into two. They go one of two ways, which always makes me curious. They go to the left, as it were, politically. So people like Dorothy Day would be implementing what they see as their Catholicism in practical way, as in loving your neighbour as yourself, helping those who need it most, and in very practical ways. Now, whether you call that Catholicism, socialism, just kindness, if somebody has nothing, you help them if you have something. And it, you know, she applied that to life in terms of the Catholic worker, and she was a convert to Catholicism. And maybe her own background in terms of the previous life she'd lived, that helped her to implement the way she saw the gospel as that she learned it to help other people. On the other hand, you have, again, people who go the complete opposite way and, and ha- would go to the right, as it were, and are very, you know, the Jacob Rees-Mogg's of this world who criticise UNICEF for becoming, you know, getting political because they want to feed poor people in this country in the 21st century. And I always wonder, always make it curious for people like that when they go to Mass on a Sunday and they hear the same words that I do or the same words that Dorothy Day did when she was alive, why some people would say, well, the idea should be that you help, you treat other people as you want to be treated and you help other people. Or you just say, if you can't help yourself, to hell with you. It's almost like some people believe in Jesus and God and the gospel and other people believe in the, the structure of perhaps the church and the, the establishment and being part of the establishment, which happens politically. You saw it in and you would know, obviously, in Spain in the 30s, you know, there was obviously, the, you know, there's a, a large tranche of the church was very much, you know, in favour of Franco. And, and you see it in other places throughout the world of the kind of support right-wing governments or, or not even dictatorships, but even just conservative thinking. That's always, it's made me curious. And, and the book itself, because I think it's written by a granddaughter, it's as much a biography of her, Dorothy Day, but also of her daughter, which is Kate Hennessy's mum. And while Dorothy Day helped she was always wanting to help other people. I think sometimes that was a detriment of her own family and her own relationships, which uh, that was maybe something that she was always trying to reconcile, that maybe the, the relationship between her and her daughter was sacrificed because she had this wider idea of what she was trying to do. And there's a kind of sadness in that because for a daughter who just wants to be loved with her mother, her mum you know, was trying to extend that love to other people. And sometimes maybe if she just contracted that occasionally, it would have been nice just to have that intimate relationship. But it's it's a really beautiful book, actually, and uh, really interesting in terms of that kind of, particularly in the United States context of a kind of social history of people trying to help others, which quite often in America, you get that sense that that's not always the case. It's every man or every woman for themselves. I think that sounds utterly fascinating. It makes me want to read it because I know that there's obviously there's, a, there's James Conley. And then, as you say, there's the people that supported Franco. So there's a real variety of people brought up in the Catholic Church. My, my father was a, a Catholic before he became a communist, before he joined the Communist Party. And the two things weren't that removed in Glasgow in the 1920s. You, you could have a picture of the Pope next to a picture of Lenin. I mean, people didn't see that there was a kind of liberation theology, progressive, looking after the poor. That whole kind of a vibe was definitely there as part of the Glasgow working class Irish Catholic experience. That A lot of people were in the ILP or in the Communist Party and then the Labour Party and would have seen themselves as socialists and wouldn't have seen that as out of kilter with being a Catholic and came back from Spain and went back to Mass again. My father didn't, as it happened, but then, then you've got situations like the ancient order of Hibernians being on the other side, as it were. So I think that thing, but then you've said touched on something that I was I said to somebody this morning, which is 
we're all part of communities and part of institutions, but if we think that they all think the same, everybody in that community and that institution, then we're living in cloud cuckoo land. People say things like, as a member of such and such a community, I think this. But then somebody else comes along and says, well, as a member of such and such a community, I think the opposite, the absolute opposite. And that's because all communities, whether it's LGBT, whether it's Catholics, whether it's Scots and so on, People are very, very divided in their views, really, and sometimes absolutely deeply divided. You might have more affinities with somebody from a completely different community or context than your own. And I think we have to accept that. And it's extremely healthy to accept that. And I've spoken to people who are still within the Catholic Church who have very radical views and so on on the left. And then there's other people that I would describe as fascists and, and racist, but that's that's not I'm not going to blame that on the church. So I, I'm not surprised to learn that even two people brought up in the same faith, maybe in the same house, can come out with completely different views. I mean, I suppose, I, I mean, I want, I'm curious actually whether that's where the phrase the broad church comes from, because obviously in my, my own church, then there are people who are on complete polar opposites politically. Although, yeah. as I say, it's always I've always been curious to know what it is that they hear that, that I don't and vice versa. And it's interesting this, woman Dorothy Day, who the Catholic worker is still ongoing, it works alongside in the United States with places like the Salvation Army and other people, just to really help those at the very, very bottom, you know, in American society. But I think Obama had quoted her once as, said she was a great reformer in American history. And even I think when the Pope was visited America, he named her, there's four Americans he, he named who had tried to strive for a better future in the United States. There was her, there was another kind of religious figure, a guy called Thomas Merton, who was like a Trappist monk and was more kind of spiritual. But the other two she mentioned, he mentioned were Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. So that's where they see her and the kind of work that she's tried to do in terms of help people. As I say, what what I think I like about the book, because it wasn't just a straight biography, because there was that family connection and Kate Hennessy said when she wanted to write about her grand very quickly, she realised that she had to write about her mum as well because uh, Dorothy Day was also a prolific writer, as well as writing for the Catholic Worker. She wrote a number of books, including, I think, at least one, if not more, of her own autobiography. So she's told her own story, her story is well known, but Kate Hennessy realised that her mum's story wasn't, it was kind of almost in the periphery, and she wanted to bring it to centre stage to say, sometimes even just the difficulty of what, what it's like when you have to kind of share ownership, as it were, of your, your mother with you know a wider movement or a wider community, and how how that can affect, how that can fracture a relationship that is, was probably fraught throughout both of their lives. That's totally fascinating. And you, you're triggering me there with all kinds of things about, yeah, so I think that's, that, that, that is fascinating. And that thing about the generations and, and so on, and the stories that are told within a, a family through history, the people that become public figures, the ones who are private figures, the ones whose stories are known, the ones sometimes there's a lot of untold stories that might in their own way be more interesting than those that touch on a kind of public or get meet or get known in the media or whatever. So I think that's that is really, really a valuable thing to be doing. No, that that but that book sounds interesting. We're on to your, your fiction choice and you've already spoken about the author of this book, Alison Irvin, in terms of her other book that she'd written, but this novel is called Cat Step, which has just come out uh, towards the end of 2020. I have to tell you that it's on my pile of books to be read because I've got a copy and Alison's been a guest on the podcast a couple of times and I, I can't wait to read it. So I'm, I'm guessing that it's going to get a, a thumbs up and a real endorsement from yourself. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's a fantastic book. It's, it's a terrific book. I'm going to read it again. I think it would make a brilliant TV serialisation adaptation. I think it's definitely crying out to be adapted. So this this is a novel that's set in Lennox Town, and it's about a woman that moves to this new town temporarily 
to look after the sale of her former partner's grandmother's house. So she she moves there with her with her daughter temporarily. And right at the start of the novel, this isn't a spoiler. She does something silly. She leaves her daughter in the car while she nips into the to the court. And when she comes out, the car's been broken into. And there's a there's a there's a crowd gathered, and then the police get involved, and a social worker gets involved, and it kind of goes from there. But that's a kind of a foreboding or ominous thing that triggers the whole thing about being new to a town, you know, being on your own, being a single parent, facing various kinds of difficulties, and then living not in the shadow of the the campses, but in the kind of a light of the campses, because the campses become this kind of a almost like the lighthouse or the you know kind of it's a kind of saving space, if you like. From there, it kind of unfolds, and it unfolds the way you would expect something a bit more noirish to unfold. There is a feeling of foreboding, and there's a few directions that you think the book is going to go in that it doesn't quite do. But it's got a, the quality of writing is just really, really strong. It's Alison's strength has always been letting other people tell their stories, not editorialising, not judging. So it's just kind of unfolds for you. And also, several things came to mind reading it. One was she's got Muriel Sparks distance from her protagonist. She gives you somebody who might, might be unsympathetic to you and maybe even hard for you to sort of penetrate the, the surface of. Some of the qualities of Rachel Seifert, who's a writer I really admire. Again, it's so, with being so pared down. And one of the great benefits of writing like that as opposed to the way I would probably write if I was to do creative writing, is that that kind of low-key writing suddenly comes into these great flashes of beauty and brilliance that really stands out. It's called Cat Step, and Liz, the main protagonist, is a former dancer. She trained with ballet and then went into more popular contemporary forms of, of dance. And there's all kinds of things that, that are then going on about how your life might change at a certain point and how the dreams of that life might change, whether that's as a writer or a dancer, whatever, teacher. So it goes off in another direction. And I would say the book's quite choreographed, if I can use a dancing term. It's called Cat Step, and it is a kind of very elaborate dance that it takes you on. Things it's about, like an intense relationship between a mother and a daughter. You were talking earlier about sharing and having to share, you know, say a parent with an institution or a, or a grandparent. I've got a thousand stories on that on that style. But I was thinking about that, what it's like to be an only child. That's one of the things that it made me think about. As we've spoken before, I'm a childless son with eight siblings, grew up with eight siblings. And if you grow up in a big family, you simply do not have the relationship with your parents that an only child has, because it's impossible. Forget it, you can't have it. You can't fight for that attention. Being an only child, especially an only child to a single parent, that's very intense. And I think a lot of the novel is partly about that. There are other issues going on, but there's a, it's about that intensity, the small, a small unit like that would feel. And it's actually not that removed from Sean Damer's book and of The Red Road and of the sense of Glasgow history, which is you had these schemes full of big families. I'm talking about families of 10, 12, 14 that grew up in these overcrowded areas and then suddenly there's a different period where you have kind of single parents and people being atomized and living in, in completely different communal circumstances and very solitary circumstances in some cases so there's a there's that element of, of as I say not father and son stories have been done to death but taking a mother-daughter story like that and telling it through neither the mother or daughter having a particularly sunny time of it and they're in this strange town under these strange circumstances temporarily and then she starts doing some dancing teaching at this sheltered housing project that the, the mother and it kind of takes off from there but I found that it's quite intense it's quite anxiety inducing it's beautifully written and it's something because of the way it's 
shown really more than, than told. I think it would adapt. I think somebody should come along and say, this would be great television. And it does deal with that thing of the coming to the new town and somewhere that's in, that's not overshadowed, I keep going to say overshadowed, but something that's looked down upon by these hills or that has these hills there. And I, I knew when I was where I was growing up, you come out, come out the close and look and you would see the campuses in the distance. So yeah, I think there's, it, it gives a real sense, a brilliant sense of place Alison was on the, the 12 Days of Book Miss earlier on in the month and we were just talking about the book and, you know, it's garnered quite a lot of praise. I've seen quite a lot of good positive reviews and people that have read it have come back with really positive feedback. But we were talking about how, given, the, the, you know, the circumstances of this year and how difficult it's been for MD to launch a book because, you know, you can't have a, a normal book launch. A lot of times people haven't been able to go to bookshops, you can't do events. So I think she and the publishers are hoping that it then gets another boost in the new year when hopefully at some point things begin to get back to, to a point where you can actually promote, actively promote the book. Um, but I, I mean, even things like this, of mentioning it of other people like yourself and what yeah. are you talking about it, you know, that can only be positive for our novel. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, ho- hopefully all these book launches are done again. But I think definitely any, anybody that's looking for something that would work really, really well on television should be looking at this. We are, we're recording this, obviously, in the, in the lead up to Christmas. And I was just curious, actually, would you be a difficult person to buy a book for, given how, how widely read and that you are already? And, and you know, did you, do your wife or other members of the family think, well, there's just no way we're going to be able to get a book that either Willie's not read or we don't know what to get him? Sadly, yes, because my stepdaughter had asked my wife recently about Muriel Spark, and I'm afraid everything on Muriel Spark that moves have already I own and have, have read. So I, I probably am difficult to buy for. Something that my brother bought me for my birthday, that I got a couple of really good book sites, but one that my brother bought for me was about interviews with Genesis from the 1970s, talking about the, the, the songs from the period. And all that made me laugh out loud. It was so wonderful. I mean, I'll give you one example. I know what I like in your wardrobe, as you know, was, was, was a hit for them in 1973. So you're and talking to me as if I, I, I'm a Genesis fan or I'm a way okay, of music. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to future, a future Genesis fan and to all the others who are out there. I know what I like in my wardrobe. I know what I like in your wardrobe. But apparently, Tony Banks had said it didn't do well because it had wardrobe in the title. <laughs> I thought that was great. And then Peter Gabriel was interviewed separately and he says, no, I didn't like the chorus. It was a bit repetitive. You know, I know what I like and I like what I know. So that made me laugh. So, but that, so John, my brother, made a good decision there. He got, he, he got this and it's quite a kind of quirky book in a way. You know, it's, it's the Genesis members going back and discussing the lyrics. Now, if you've ever been 15 and been into lyrics... And imagine, imagine if you could actually sit with all the band members when you're 15 in your room and discuss the lyrics to all the songs you like. Well, that's a bit of what that book was like. It's funny, I have this thing, and I could probably be a whole other podcast, because I always think people buy uh, or like songs for the music. That Actually, you can have the greatest or the most simplistic of rubbish lyrics in the world, but see, if you don't like the tune, it doesn't really matter. So you could, you could have something that would move you in terms of, you know, you could read the words. Actually, if, if somebody sets it to a piece of music that you don't like, you'll never appreciate it. I, th- I think what you say is true. I remember coming in late one night, putting on TV, and the Arctic Monkeys were on, and I, and I thought, this is just noise, nothing in it appeals to me. But through the noise, I began to discern the lyrics, and I thought, this is really rich and really interesting, and it's it's not the jam 40 years ago, but it's because they had tunes. But I, I recognise that disjuncture that can be between lyrical content and but in terms of the sociology of pop and Simon Frith and so on, I think people lyrics do speak to people. But you're right, you need a tune too. So I think getting those two things together, Lennon and McCartney did it, but it's tough. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the, the typical audience in this podcast splits between Genesis fans and Arctic Monkeys fans. <laughs> You've either made a half happy or half enraged. 
yeah, that's well, good. Well, listen, Willie, we have uh, come to the end of this 12 Days of Bookmas podcast. As always, it's really brilliant talking to you about books. We could sit and chat all day. But should do this I, again, Paul. Well, I, I'll, I'll make up some other format for 2021. But, you need to do yeah. a discmas. You know, you need to do you need to do something about music. I'm ready. I'm finally ready to talk about Genesis. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm, I'm finally ready to listen. The world is ready. Um, but listen, have a, a really good Christmas, uh, you and your wife, when it comes round. And thanks again for joining me. You, you too. And 2021 is going to be much better. Believe me. Thanks for listening to the 12 Days of Bookness, a special Read All About It podcast series that is so special it even has its own theme tune. You can subscribe to the podcast and leave a review which will help other book lovers find us. And I hope you can join me, Paul Cuddy, on the next episode. In the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.